I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 115. Psalm 115 is our text this morning. And I do now invite you to hear and receive the holy, inspired, and authoritative word of the triune God. Brothers, sisters, and friends, he is the only true God, and this is his word. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, they, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, it's our prayer this morning that you would glorify your name in our midst. Through the proclamation of your word in the midst of the congregation. Lord, we certainly look forward to fellowshipping with one another, having fun, enjoying the unity that is brought about by the Spirit as we have our church picnic this afternoon. But Lord, now our focus is on hearing from you through your word. And so help us to hear, O oh God. Help us to trust. Help us to believe. Help us to live for your glory and not our own. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A little over two years ago, a short-term missions team was sent from this church to visit and serve along Charles and I in Cambodia. And many of the stateless Vietnamese in Cambodia, they live on houseboats along the Mekong River, along the Tonle Sap River. And the vast majority of those houses, they have their differences, but they have one commonality. 
you will find idols in nearly every one of those houses. Furthermore, the native people of Cambodia, the Khmer, they are a people who, generally speaking, bow down to physical idols. We went to Phnom Penh. We walked about the streets. We engaged with some of the people in every place you turned your head. There was seemingly an idol. Now, I remember one of the girls who we were working alongside after preaching the gospel. She said as we were walking back to home base, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. She looked at me and she said, Pastor, they need the Lord. That is the cry of every Christian. When we look at those who bow down and serve idols, our cry should be, oh, that they would know the Lord. Oh, that they would see Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 115 expresses the desire, and not only the desire, but the expectation as well of God's people for him, the Lord, to be exalted above everything and to be praised among everyone. In other words, the psalmist called upon the Lord to vindicate his name among the nations. And we'll see this theme worked out in five segments in our text this morning. First, we're going to see the supremacy of Yahweh, the Lord, in verses 1 through 3. Then we're going to look at the stupidity of idols in verses 4 through 8. Then we're going to look at the shout for submission to Yahweh in verses 9 through 11. We're going to look at the source and supply for those who are indeed submitted to Yahweh in verses 12 through 15. And finally, we're going to see the ceaseless song of those who are submitted to Yahweh. So let us begin with the first segment, the supremacy of Yahweh. The supremacy of Yahweh. Verses 1 through 3, once again, read, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why? Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I feel like simply reading verse 1 and sitting down, to be completely honest with you. That's it. Not to us. Not to me, not to you. But to your name. Give glory, O oh God. To your name. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Verse 1 must be a part of our prayer life. Because if you're anything like me, sometimes you want a little slice of the glory. Sometimes you want your name to be lifted up. You want your name to be exalted. But the psalmist has it right here. It's not to us, but it's unto the Lord. I love how the psalmist immediately and emphatically takes the focus away from himself 
He takes the focus away from the nation of Israel, away from the pagan nations. He will address those things, but he first and foremost puts the Lord up front. And he gives us two negative, not to us. And placed between those two negatives, as if they were pieces of bread, he puts the Lord himself in the middle. He is the meat of the sandwich, if you will. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us. The poetic device simply, yet profoundly, invites us to ponder the reality of the purpose of life. Those simple words, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us. The Spirit sings to us, what does this say for everything that you do and think and live for? Well, the world invites us to see ourselves as the center of all things. The Word commands us to see God at the center of all things. As Paul will say later in the book of Romans 4, from Him and through Him and to Him are some things. No. Everything. Everything points to his glory. He creates, he sustains, and ultimately the purpose of all things are for him to be lifted up. The psalmist doesn't give us the specific context that prompted his writing. Some commentators suggest that this psalm was composed while the nation of Israel was being ridiculed by the surrounding nations, perhaps after or during the Babylonian exile. Others suggest that it was written after Israel fought, fought a fight or a battle and that they won. Still others suggest that this psalm was written while the nation was in crisis prior to the exile. But regardless of the specific setting, it is fitting and it is right for any song unto the Lord to begin with not to us, O Lord, not to us. What is the focus what is the purpose? What is the ultimate end of life? Is it not that God would be glorified and that the glory of God would be seen among the nations? So that's exactly what the psalmist says. He says, but to your name, give glory. Lord, which is used in verse one, is how our English Bibles portray the covenant name of God, Yahweh. We see Lord in all caps, and the name Yahweh is behind that. And so now the psalmist says, to your name, to that name, give glory. What's in a name? What is in a name? Apparently in our day and age, there's not much behind a name. But in the Hebrew mind, as they write this psalm, they would understand one's name as being tied to their character and as being tied to their reputation. And so the psalmist desires for the character and the reputation of God to be renowned among all the nations. And that causes us to ask ourselves this question. Do we desire for the name of our Lord to be renowned in all places? Or do we desire for our own reputation to be renowned wherever we go? As the psalmist continues to write, he constantly draws us back to not to us, O Lord. Not to us. Why does the psalmist desire for God's name to be renowned? Why does he desire for God's name to be glorified? Well, he tells us, he says, for the sake of your steadfast love and your 
faithfulness. The covenant name of Yahweh has been employed and a desire for that name to receive glory has been expressed and now the attributes of God are being communicated. The word translated steadfast love, it's one word in the Hebrew and it's a word that often speaks of God's covenant faithfulness, his covenant loyalty, his covenant commitment to his people. The Hebrew word translated faithfulness communicates adherence to that which is true. As a matter of fact, it's even often translated truthfulness. If God acts and manifests himself with these two things, with characteristic love or commitment and with faithfulness or truthfulness, then the outcome will be glory. Glory will indeed follow. And for you and I who have believed upon the Lord by his grace, the good news is this, is that God always acts in accordance with his nature. His nature being wholly good such that steadfast love and faithfulness express the nature of God. So, this reality of God always acting in accordance with his nature, it's not dependent upon his people. It's not dependent upon the nation of Israel. It's not dependent upon the church. Rather, God acts lovingly and faithfully because God is love and God is truth. Therefore, his person and his actions not only should but will lead to his name receiving glory. I think Ezekiel paints this picture pretty clearly for us in Ezekiel chapter 36. Listen to what he writes. Ezekiel writing both during, right before and during, and then after the exile. This is what he says. Speaking on behalf of the Lord, beginning in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, it says, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish Let me try this again. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. Listen to this. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and I will give you a new spirit. I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and increase the field of abundant and that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then 
you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. It is not, I'm sorry, it is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and be confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Brothers, sisters, and friends, we have to get comfortable with this one fact that is so clearly expressed to us in Ezekiel chapter 36. That God first and foremost acts for himself. That God first and foremost acts for himself. Ezekiel is aware of that. Our psalmist is aware of that. And they are both desirous of that. Are you? Is your primary desire the glory of God in your life and the glory of God in others' lives regardless of the outcome? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, there are times deep down inside, yes, we know what to say on Sunday mornings, yes, we know to shake our heads at Bible passages, but deep down inside, if we're honest with ourselves, there are times that we are not okay with God orchestrating events in the world for the primary purpose of his glory. But friends, what do we do with that? We have to remember that God's glory is the best thing for you. That the glory of God is not your opponent. God's glory himself being the supreme goal and the supreme end of all things is not an obstacle to your pursuit of happiness. Rather, it is the means by which you can have joy and everlasting joy. Not to us. Oh Lord, not to us. He glorifies himself, and when he does that, his people are always benefited. In verse 2, the psalmist quotes the nations as wondering where Israel's God is. Why should the nation say, where is their God? But the psalmist knows that Yahweh, that Yahweh alone is truly God, and that he dwells in heaven both during and after the exile, which again is possibly when this psalm was written, Israel was mocked. They were mocked due to their defeat by the hands of the Babylonians. And they would ask questions such as this, where is your God, O Israel? Yet despite circumstances and appearances, God remained and still remains the same covenant-keeping faithful God who reigns from heaven. So what's the psalmist's response? He says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Boom goes the dynamite. That's it. There it is. Our God is in heaven. He's doing everything that he pleases. I can go to bed tonight, y'all, because my God is in the heavens doing everything that he pleases. And that is the heart of this psalm, God is sovereign. God is in control. He is king. He reigns. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. He alone sits upon the throne in heaven, and he does whatever he desires. So, you should trust him. You should trust him. Psalm 135, verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. 
Job, perhaps the earliest book written in the Bible, says this, Job speaking of God, but he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Verse 3 emphasizes the transcendence of our great God. The sovereignty of God is emphasized here. Brothers, sisters, and friends, God sits in the prime position of authority over the entirety of his creation. Trust him. Trust him in whatever circumstance you find yourself in today, in tomorrow, in next month, in next year, and in a decade, and in 50 years. Trust him till the grave, and then once you're in the grave, you'll trust him like you never have before. That is our God. He is worthy of our trust. Once again, God freely acts in accordance with his nature. He freely acts in accordance with his nature such that everything that he does is pleasing and he does whatever he pleases. If we're not pleased with God's deeds, friends, if we're not pleased with God's deeds, the problem with, is with us, with our expectations, with our desires, it's with our perspective, it's with our nature. It's not, it's not his problem. He is good, and he does good, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119, verse 68. The central theme of this psalm is that the sovereign God has the ability and the right to do that which he wishes, which is the major contrast between Yahweh and the pagan idols of the nations. The significance of God doing whatever he pleases is most clearly seen when we continue on in our passage where he is contrasted with the pagan's gods. Now let's look at the stupidity of idols in verses 4 through 8. It says their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands, they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And here's the crushing blow, verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So do all who trust in them. We know and we understand that the nation of Israel was commanded not to make idols, Perhaps most famously in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, the Lord says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And as an aside, he is the only being who can rightfully be jealous because he alone created everything, owns everything, and is jealous in a holy way, unlike we are sometimes. He's jealous for that which is his. He's jealous for that which is his own, primarily his people. So he tells them, don't make carved idols. Don't make images. Don't bow down to them. Well, why? Why, God? You gave us eyes to see beautiful things. We're creative. Because you're creative, creative and we're, we're made in your image. 
Well, in short, the answer is this. There's nothing, there's nothing that man can make that properly represents God. Therefore, idols are an affront to God. Furthermore, since Yahweh is the one true God, and since idols cannot represent him, then idols are inherently worthless, and they deserve no glory. Like what Derek Kinder says, he says, A God too great to tie down to any image or even to earth itself, who is not the prisoner of circumstances, but rather the master of circumstances, is a God to glory in. He continues, and he is our God. Not in the petty sense in which the heathen, ha heathen have their idols, all their own work, but in the personal bond of steadfast love and faithfulness. I love that quote. Foolishness of idols is seen again and again throughout the scriptures, maybe most predominantly through the prophets. I want to share with you a few passages out of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 and 11 read, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craft, craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And then in Isaiah chapter 46, beginning at verse 5, once again, the Lord speaking, he says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that, he may be, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god when they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things, from ancient times, things not yet to be done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Ah, idols are foolishness. And the irony of idol-making is that those who make them, they employ the gifts and the talents and the capabilities that God has given them to make their own gods. And perhaps at this point you're thinking to yourself, well, physical idols aren't that big of an issue in our day and age. Why does this matter to me? How does this fit into my day and time? Well, two responses. First is this. I would encourage you to look around and be a little more observant. Idols are all over the place in my neighborhood. Two houses down. It's a big Buddha. And the lady who lives there says that's her, that's her resting place. Look around. Scan your neighborhoods. And you'll see the idols are alive and well here in America. But second is this. 
recognize that one does not need to craft a physical idol to be worshiping an idol. Our hearts on the regular make immaterial idols. Moreover, we can idolize things that we see and place them in our own hearts. It's exactly what Ezekiel says. In Ezekiel 14, listen to what the Lord says. The context here is that Ezekiel is prophesying and that the people come to him. Elders of Israel come to him. But these elders of Israel have forsaken the Lord and they are worshiping idols. And so this is the Lord's response in Ezekiel 14, 1. It says, Then certain of the idols of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, God referring to Ezekiel, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let them be consulted? Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself, and I will set my face against that man, and I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord." What idol? What idol might you be carrying around in your heart that your pastors can't see, that your spouses can't see, that your friends can't see, that your neighbors can't see, but that you can see and that the Lord can see? If you are carrying an idol in your heart, bowing down to it rather than the Lord, I plead with you to turn from your idols and turn to the Lord, lest he be turned against you. The stupidity of idols is explicit in Scripture, and no man-made objects reveal the nature of God. It's clear. They have all these physical attributes, but none of those physical attributes function. The psalmist says our God is in the heaven. He does all that he, he pleases. And we affirm the psalmist's statement. But at the very same time, we simultaneously affirm that our God came from heaven to save his people and then returned to heaven, wherefrom he will come again the second person of the triune God. God the Son assumed a human nature to redeem human nature. He took on flesh 
He took on this human nature without ceasing to be God. God the Son, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself. Well, how? How did he empty himself is the question. Paul tells us, Philippians 2, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, he has a mouth and he is able to speak. He has eyes and he is able to see. He has ears and he is able to hear. He has a nose and he is able to smell. He has hands and he is able to touch. He has feet and he is able to walk. Yet this man came to serve rather than to be served. He lived and died so that you might die and live. He rose from the grave so that you also might rise from the grave. So Paul tells us that therefore, God the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at his name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. This man is Jesus of Nazareth. He is God and Lord, and he is coming back. And you will answer to him. One of the things that I love about Philippians 2 is Paul is pulling from Isaiah 45, verse 23, when Yahweh is speaking. And Yahweh says, to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And here in Philippians 2, we see Jesus. Jesus. To him, the great God of heaven who entered into his own creation, to him, every knee will bow. And those who trust him, saints, listen to me now, those who trust him, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who trust him become like him. Those who trust him become like him. Yet those who make idols and those who trust idols become like them. In other words, we become like what we worship. I implore you, non-Christian and Christian alike, there is one hope for each of us, and that is Christ. So for the first time or for the 5,000th time, look to Jesus, the one who knows what it is to be truly human and the one who has promised to make us truly human when he comes again. Yahweh is supreme Idols are stupid. So what now ought we do? This brings us to the third segment. And the, the psalmist is going to tell us. This is the shout for submission to Yahweh. Verses 9 through 11 simply say this. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shields. Oh, oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. 
In these three verses, we have three believing groups being specified. We have the nation of Israel. We have the house of Aaron, also known as the priesthood. And we have Gentile believers who were God-fearers, those who believed in the God of Israel, yet were not ethnically Jewish. And so these three groups are representative of all ethnicities and all social classes. The nation of Israel, the priesthood, and Gentile believers are to do the same thing which is to trust in the Lord, rely on the Lord. This is both a call and a challenge to practical faith. The Hebrew term behind the English word trust conveys a sense of of confidence. In other words, the believer is to have a confidence in his God. And this really shouldn't surprise us because in verse three is true, Our God sits in the heavens and does all that he pleases. That means that he is for us and not against us simply because he is our God. And if he's our God and if our God is sovereign, then we should have confidence and trust in that God. He is in control. He is on our side Maybe better stated, by his grace, we are on his side. That being the case, would the Lord help us to have confidence in him, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in? But the psalmist gives us further insight into why we should have such confidence in the Lord. He says of these three specified groups that the Lord is his people's helps, his people's help and their shield. The Lord is their help and their shield over and over and over again. You know what the word help means in the Hebrew? It means help. It means God helps his people. It means that God assists his people. He providentially cares for us. And there are times, brothers and sisters, when we are keenly aware of his help for us. There are times where we look to him and we say, God, I see it and I sense it and I give you thanks. And there are other times when we say, where are you, God? Nevertheless, every step of the way, he is helping you and assisting you, sometimes in ways that we don't have the discernment to see or grasp. He is, thank you, Lord, he is our ever-present help. There's a man, a knuckle-headed man at that, that nearly 13 years ago moved from Ohio to Southern California with $600 to his name and a broken-down Dodge Intrepid. Within a few weeks, the Lord saved that man. And that man stands before you right now. I trusted in the Lord by his grace. And the Lord helped, is helping, and will help me. And if you are his, the Lord helped, is helping, and will help you. If a man like me Lost as lost can be, gets help from the Lord constantly and continually. 
such is the case for you as well. Because God keeps his promises to his people. He is the God for his name's sake, glorifies himself. He is the God of steadfast love and he is the God of faithfulness. And so as we're commanded to trust in the Lord, and as we can say, I trusted in the Lord, we're reminded once again, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give glory. But not only is God his people's help, he is also their shield. In other words, he is their protector. The last time I checked, you guys can update me if I'm wrong, carved images don't do a very good job of protecting you. As a matter of fact, you yourself don't even do a very good job of protecting you. But you know who does protect his people perfectly? Our God. Our God, the one who sits in heaven, the one who does all that he pleases. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not sure that he always has protected me. And I respond to that. He may not protect you in the way that you desire to be protected, but his promises are sure such that even in death, such that even in death, you are protected by the Lord. Many of you know Pastor Rob's funeral was on Friday. And it was sweet and it was bitter. And the Lord Jesus Christ was exalted. And I thought to myself, Rob is forever protected. Forever protected, perfectly, by the Lord. Because he is with him. And will be so forevermore. Even in death, the Lord protects his people. Verse 3 expresses the transcendence of God, him being in the heavens. If it expresses the fact that he exists in some sense beyond our reach, then these verses, verses 9 through 11, express that he is also the imminent God. He is also the God that is near to us. The God of the Bible is not merely a far-off God. The God of the Bible is not merely a close-to-me kind of God. He is both. He is both the transcendent and imminent God who is so beyond his people that he does everything that he pleases, yet who is so near to his people that he is pleased to help them and to protect them. If you don't believe the truth about God in verse 3, then it's impossible to respond, respond rightly to the call of verses 9 through 11. If God is not in the heavens, if God is not able to do all that he pleases, then it's impossible for us to trust in him wholly and completely. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Friends, trust in the Lord. This brings us to the source and supply for those submitted to Yahweh. This is verses 12 through 15. And really from verse 12 forward, the psalm begins to lead us to its conclusion by focusing on the result of trusting in the Lord. In verses 12 and 13, what we have is a declaration of Yahweh's blessings. They're stated as fact. He will do this. He will do that. 
He will bless, he will bless his people. But then you have in verses 14 and 15, an intercession for God's blessing. You've promised to do so, but we're crying out to you, God, that you will do so, is the idea. Verses 12 through 15 read, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. These verses begin with that small but significant phrase. The Lord has remembered us. The Lord has remembered us. The idea is not that the Lord forgets us and then something has to jog his memory. Rather, the idea is that the Lord is mindful of his people constantly and continually such that we can call and we can cry out, God, you have remembered me. As a matter of fact, it's similar to what David says in Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, verses 3 through 5, David says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Yet, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. David was in awe of the greatness of his God, and he tried to grasp how such a great God can care for such sinful men. Nevertheless, as revealed in his word, God does care for his image bearers. In our psalm, the psalmist encourages his his listeners with the fact that he remembers us. The us refers, once again, to the three specified, specified groups that believe They're mentioned earlier and they're repeated here. The nation of Israel, the priesthood, the Gentile believers, the God-fearers, that is. And once again, these three groups are representative of all ethnicities and all social classes. And the psalmist declares that the Lord will indeed bless them. But he goes further this time. And he adds both the great and the small. Both the great and the small and the small. The declaration of blessing from the Lord shows that he is not a God of favoritism. He is not a God who looks at us and says, based on your deeds, I will respond this way. Rather, if you are his, he lavishes his grace upon you, and he cares for you, and he blesses you. He's a God who blesses his people regardless of their standing before men. So unlike us. You befriend and you bless those who we like, who we get along with. Same favorite sports teams, same restaurants, whatever the case may be. God lavishes his love upon his people as an expression of who he inherently is. One commentator said, the insistent repetition of the word bless drives home the point that all of us alike, every group, every type of person, and every generation must have the smile and created touch of God on us if we are to thrive. And our God smiles upon us, not because ourselves, but because we are in his son, Christ, such that when he looks at me, praise God he doesn't see me, 
He treats me as if I am Christ and lavishes blessings upon me. Things that I don't deserve, but things that Christ purchased for those who are his. Praise the Lord. Verses 14 and 15 now call upon God in petition. And really these verses are seemingly derived from the Abrahamic covenant when God promises to increase Abraham's offspring and bless him. We see that all over the place, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis uh, 18, over and over and over again that we see that in the book of Genesis. And what we have here is hundreds of years later, the psalmist praying and or singing scripture. The psalmist singing and or praying scripture. Specifically, we have an example of the psalmist asking God to bring about the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And just as an aside, we should pray similarly. You don't know what to pray? or Maybe you do know what to pray, but after 30 seconds, it's all I got, God? Open your Bible. Familiarize yourself with the promises of God. And pray that the Lord would bless you in the way that he promised to. Pray that the Lord would bless your church in the way that he promised to. Pray that the Lord would move and impact your community through the proclamation of his word and through your household. Pray the scriptures. Pray the scriptures. This prayer closes with the reality that God who made heaven and earth is the God we pray to. Nothing is too hard for this God. His hand is not too short. Therefore, it is good and right and fitting for us to ask him to bring to fruition that which he has promised to do. Finally, this brings us to our fifth segment, the ceaseless song of those submitted to Yahweh in verses 16 through 18. The psalm finishes, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The closing verses really do have an end-time flavor to them, an eschatological bent. The psalmist acknowledges that the Lord dwells in the heavens, but he also acknowledges that God has graciously given the earth to mankind. We see this first in Genesis chapter 1. Verses 26 through 28, most clearly, where man is told to subdue and rule over the earth, to have dominion over it, to be fruitful and to multiply. A couple chapters later, we see Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, and we might think to ourselves, did we mess it all up? Do we have the right, the God-given right to rule on the earth? Well, David seems to think so. In Psalm 8, which Pastor Warren Warren will be preaching soon, he repeats, The fact that dominion has been given to man to rule upon the earth. We fast forward a few more hundred years, and in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, the author of the Hebrews seems to think the same thing. We don't yet see it, he says. We don't see man ruling upon the earth, but we do see Jesus. And as we continue to work our way through the New Testament, we realize that Jesus is the one whom through man will rule the earth. We finally see that culmination in chapter 
21 and 22, chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation, where we see the new heaven and the new earth, the restoration of heaven and earth. As a matter of fact, heaven coming down to earth such that heaven and earth are one. And there it says that we both serve God. But Revelation 22, 5 tells us that we also reign with him. The teaching of Scripture and therefore the teaching of God is that man was made to inhabit the earth and to praise God, and that is exactly what we will do. The psalmist acknowledges that the dead do not praise the Lord, that those who go down into silence do not worship the Lord. Therefore, the psalmist says what? He says, we will bless the Lord from this time forth. He could have ended the psalm there. He could have stopped there. Because those who are in the grave do not bless the Lord on earth. Rather, we who are alive on the earth now have the opportunity and the responsibility to worship the Lord in the place that God has given mankind. But the psalmist says, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The psalmist looks ahead to endless praise. I believe he is further acknowledging the contrast that those who trust in idols become like them, which is everlastingly dead and lifeless. But those who trust in the Lord become like him through receiving eternal life. Jesus himself said in John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the question. Furthermore, he says earlier in the same book, John 3, For God what? For God thus loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Saints, we will worship the Lord forevermore in the realm that he has given to man, in a restored earth without sin, where there'll be no more tears and no more crying and no more death and no more sorrow, but abundance of joy, you for the very first time being fully human. People often say to be human is to err. Or to err is to be human. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus was fully human and he erred not. And you will be redeemed completely and totally, both body and soul, and be fully human for the very first time. In conclusion, beloved, first is this. As I've already said earlier, if you have not placed your trust in the Lord, there's no better time to do so now. See yourself as you truly are, a sinner in need, a rebel at heart, needing to be overwhelmed by God's grace and call upon the name of the Lord. And for those of you who have believed, I want you to remember these three simple things. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. We all know the crevices of our heart, and God knows those crevices much more deeply than we do. There are times in which we fail, to give ourselves wholly and entirely to the Lord. He is worthy of all of us. You are no longer your own, and you are not anything else. You are bought at a price. 
Worship the Lord and become like him. Secondly, remember that the focus of life is not our glory. The focus of life is not us. The focus of life is for us to shrink as, as low as we can and to point up and to point to everyone, God, may God be glorified here and forevermore. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name. To your name, O oh God. Give glory. And lastly, oh, thank you, Lord. Lastly, remember this. He has... He will, and he is blessing you simply because he's captured you and made you his own. Oh, saints of redeemed South Bay, trust in the Lord and praise the Lord. Father, thank you for the time that we've had in your word this morning. We pray, oh God, that no glory would be given us, but that you would glorify your name. In our hearts as individuals, in our heart collectively as a church, in our communities, in our state, in our nation, in the world, would you give your name glory? Lord, we know and we trust that you will do just that, we desire that we would see it in our day and age ever increasingly. We know that that which you have said will come to pass, so a day is coming when all the nations will give you glory, the glory that you alone are worthy of. But Lord, would you help us to be effective in ascribing you glory and ministering to others that they might do the same? Why should our neighbors say, where is his God? May we respond that our God is in the heavens doing all that he pleases and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Thank you for your precious promises, O oh God. Have your way in us from this time and forevermore. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.